that. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Before I read our text, I, I need to remind you that Kep will be out at Pine Shadows in Porter tomorrow night there at the, at the nursing home. And uh, if you're not able to go and to be a part of that or to make cookies or uh, take blankets or whatever needs to be done, I hope that you will at least be mindful to pray for them as they go and minister to those dear folks there. It's hard to imagine being, uh, I started to say elderly and... uh, Uh, Bev always tells me, say, you're only as old as you feel. And I always say, you know, that's the problem. That's the problem. (laughs) You know, so. But there are a lot of folks out there that are not all that old. And yet because of their infirmities, they're they're restricted uh, to that place. And it's just a a sad story for a lot of those people. And uh, for them to get that time of, of joy and cheerfulness uh, is something really special. Well, probably you already figured that before the Christmas season of the year was over that we'd get around to this particular verse. I think just about everybody here is familiar with it. Our text is found in verse number 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us... A child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The title of the message this morning is No Wonder He is Called Wonderful. Someone calculated that there are over 700 names, titles, offices, metaphors, and descriptive phrases of Jesus in the Bible. We find only five of those here in this one text verse that we've chosen for the message today. And to really get a handle on what's going on, we actually need to go back to chapter number 7. And I don't want you to get lost in all of the details, so I'm going to try to just sum it up very briefly for you. We want to make sure that we understand what was going on at that time in the history of Israel so, so we can understand what the text is all about here, about 742 B.C., the prophet Isaiah was sent to Jerusalem to speak to Ahaz. And, of course, he was the wicked king of Judah at that time. And uh, during that time, the kingdom was divided. There was Israel that was made up of the ten northern tribes. And then, of course, there there was Judah made up of the two southern tribes and And sadly, they are divided one from the other at this time. Israel, as a a means of self-protection, had joined in an alliance with Syria, and they're trying to force Judah to join in with them. So here is a time of conflict among God's people, 
It's a time of spiritual darkness, a time of political distress, a time of social unrest. There, in other words, there's danger on every hand. And so it was in this frightening situation that Isaiah urges the king to ask God for a sign. And, of course, the sign had to do with the fact that God giving them some assurance that he would protect them. And sadly enough, there in chapter 7, we see that the king had no interest in that at all, evidently not really any genuine interest in God whatsoever. And so in response to that, the Lord told them, I'll give you a sign then. And that's chapter 7 and verse number 14 where he says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And it mentions the fact that this son born of a virgin will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now we come to chapter number 8. And in this chapter, Isaiah predicts the downfall of Israel at the hands of Assyria. And so we come to chapter 9. And when we get here, it's all a picture of doom and gloom. The people have been swallowed up in spiritual darkness. They're emotionally distraught as a result of their sin. And it's in that context that Isaiah announces the birth and the work and the reign of the Messiah. And on several different occasions, I preached on those three things where he says, unto us a child is born. That's one thing. And then he says a son is given. That's something, although in reference to the same person, it's something entirely different. So he's talking about the birth of Christ, the work of Christ. A son is given that is presented as a sacrifice And then he says the government shall be upon his shoulder indicating that this one who was born of a virgin who was offered as a sacrifice shall eventually reign over all of the earth. And so this is the setting. And also we see here in chapter number 9, if you look at verse 2, it says the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now remember I just said this is a time of spiritual darkness. The people are living in great fear and yet the Lord is assuring them that that in the person of the Messiah there shall be a great light to illuminate their path. In other words, a revelation of God himself. That was the very thing that they needed. And by the way, that is exactly what we need today. In these sin-darkened days, in these tough times, we need to understand that that light is the very light of Christ, that light that has already come, and He's the one that shall set up an everlasting kingdom. We'll get to that later. But understand that in acknowledging the eventual reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, in living in the light of that fact, we find the energy, I don't even know what word to use, we find the motivation, the energy, uh, uh, the compulsion, or whatever it is that we need to keep going. That, 
that's the idea that Paul had in mind when he talked about all of the difficulties that he went through in Second Corinthians chapter number 4. All of these great difficulties, he said, yet we faint not. We don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. And the reason was, when you come down to the last three verses of that chapter, he tells us it's because we're looking at things that are eternal and not the temporal things on this earth. In other words, we're looking beyond this veil of tears. We're looking out into eternity. We're not looking at what was or what is. We're looking for what is yet to come. That was the thing that, that sustained Paul. And, and, and this, this is the thing that Isaiah wanted them to understand because in the mind of many of those Jews in that day, everything seemed hopeless. Uh, it was just gloom and doom, as I said. And Isaiah is giving them this word of assurance that it's going to be all right. You know, it might hurt now, but it's going to be all right eventually. And if we could just sum all of this up, you know, to me it would be with that one word, wonderful. There are five different descriptions of Christ here, but all of them in some way relate to the fact that He is a wonderful Savior. And that's what we want to talk about. First of all, he's wonderful because of who he is. I mean, if he never did anything, he would be wonderful. You know, a lot of times we misuse words, don't we? We talk about something being great, or we say something is awesome, or something is wonderful. And really, it's, you know, we're using a word that is not appropriate for what it is that we're trying to describe. But God says what He means and means what He says. And whenever the Lord says that His name shall be called Wonderful, you can mark it down. He really, truly is wonderful. Jesus is the great unlike. By that I mean He is unlike anybody else that has ever lived. He is the... He is the God-man. I don't mean he's half man and half God. He's as much God as though he were not man at all and as much man as though he were not God at all. He is the God-man. He is the only one who ever lived that can be classified in that manner. He is God. Remember John said in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, he says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is God in the flesh. Because of that, we can refer to Jesus as the Creator of the universe. Whenever we speak about the fact that Jesus came into this world, or we say that God gave His Son for our sins, what we're actually saying is is that God wrapped Himself in a robe of flesh and came down from the glory of heaven to this old sin-cursed earth. That's what we're talking about. God came. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us. That is Christmas in one word. Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, although He is truly God Jesus was fully man also. By that, 
I mean that he knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to grow weary. He knew what it was to feel pain. He knew what it was to suffer rejection. He knew what it was to have emotion and even to be able to weep. And so he has gone through all of this human experience himself. And yet in every instance you have to conclude that he is glorious in all of this. He is wonderful because of who he is. Had he never done anything else, had he never done anything on our behalf, he's wonderful. Not only because of who he is, but he's wonderful because of what he has done. Isaiah points out the fact that he was to be born of a virgin. I mean, can you imagine anything more, you know, wonderful, astonishing than that? He says, God's going to give you a sign, and the sign is a virgin is going to conceive. You see, Jesus was the only person ever born older than his mother. You ever thought about that? Whenever Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, she gave birth to a body but that personality had existed for all of eternity. He is the eternal God. And because of the fact that he was born of a virgin, it tells us that he is something wonderful, fully wonderful. In that, we see at least three things. We see, first of all, the wisdom of God. You see, if we were going to have a perfect Savior, then we had to have one who was absolutely, totally sinless. And here we see that if Jesus had been born of natural parents, he would have inherited a sinful nature. And so in his great wisdom, God excluded the human element from it. He just took the male element out of the picture and God himself, God himself came through the vessel of Mary. But not only do we see the wisdom of God, we see the great power of God in this. Remember the Gabriel saying to, to Mary, with God, nothing shall be impossible. And the virgin birth proves that's true. Not only do we see his wisdom and power, but in this we see his great love. The fact that God sent his own dear son into this world to suffer and bleed and die for us. That's a demonstration of the love of God. So in the virgin birth, we see that he is wonderful, but not only by his virgin birth, but also by his virtuous life. The fact is that he, he never sinned, though he was tempted in all points such as we are, yet the Bible says without sin. Every part of his life, everything about his life was sinless. He, he lived up to his name. His name is wonderful, and he proved that he was by living a virtuous life. You see, had he not lived a perfect life, he could not have been a presentable sacrifice. He would have never qualified. In the Old Testament, you'll remember that uh, in regards to the Levitical priesthood and the offerings that were offered, and the Lord told him, said, you take a male out of the flock of the first year that is in the prime of life, 
had to meet all of these qualifications and it was to be put up and examined and it had to be without spot or blemish. You know, we think to ourselves, what's the big deal about an animal? They're just going to kill it anyway. What difference does it make? It made a big difference because that little animal was a representative or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who was to be sinless. So we see the one who was born of a virgin lived a virtuous life and then died a vicarious death. By vicarious, I mean on behalf of. That is, he took our place. He suffered in our stead. He died not because he had to die. He died not because he had done something wrong. He died in order that we might live. And how can we not see that he is wonderful in that he took our place? Not only by his vicarious death, but also his victorious resurrection. Whenever we think about the fact that after he was crucified and taken down from the cross, laid in a borrowed tomb. And whenever we think about those disciples, men that had forsaken all to follow the Lord, men that have dedicated themselves to the purpose of serving him, and now everything seems to be lost, all doom and gloom. The one that they had followed so faithfully for these three and a half years now is taken from them. And from all appearance, it seems that the devil has won. But after three days and three nights, Jesus walks out of the tomb. No wonder we call him wonderful. He's wonderful in all of this, not only because of who He is, not only because of what He has done, His virgin birth, His virtuous life, vicarious death, victorious resurrection, but He's wonderful because of what He's doing. You know, this is the most neglected part of our Lord's ministry. I think, anyway, that's my opinion because you hear so little about it. We hear a lot about the fact that he was born of a virgin. We hear a lot about the fact that he arose from the grave. We celebrate that, you know, you know, every Sunday, actually. But we just don't hear a whole lot about what he's doing now. You know, somewhere or another, some folks got it in their mind, oh, well, you know, he died for us, he rose from the grave, he ascended back into heaven, and now he's just sitting up there watching the world go by, and someday he's going to come back again. But he's doing a lot more than that. He's presently making intercession for us. Think about that. The reason our prayers are effective is because we have an advocate with the Father. We have one standing in the gap. We have one there in heaven representing us before the Father. Whenever we think about all that he went through, the suffering, the humiliation, the shame, the reproach and all of that, and sometimes we we wonder why God would allow his dear son to be subjected to all of that. Well, aside from the fact that he was giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Now think about this. In all of this, the Bible even puts it like this. It says he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Now, 
Now, wait a minute. That doesn't mean that Jesus had to learn how to be obedient to the Father. That doesn't mean that he was somewhat less than perfect and that he was perfected as a result of this suffering. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that he was preparing for the present ministry by the things that he suffered. It's no small thing when the Bible says he was suffering he was subjected and uh, suffered and tempted in all points such as we are and yet without sin. You see, that tells us, as the writer in Hebrews says, we have a great high priest in heaven who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, he is one who knows how we feel. He knows absolutely everything about it. So many times, you know, in the midst of all of our trials and we think, ourselves oh nobody knows in fact the old song says nobody knows the trouble i've seen uh, yes there is one that knows jesus knows all about it you see because in all of this suffering that he was going through it was preparing him for this present ministry of making intercession for us by the way That is exactly what's going on in your life right now as a Christian. Those things that happen to you that you don't understand, those things that are so painful, those things that you would never choose for yourself, those things that are so difficult for you to endure. And we wonder so many times, why would God allow us, if He really loves us as much as He says that He does, why would God allow us to suffer like that? if He has really forgiven us of all of our sins like He says He has, why does God allow good people to suffer bad things? It's because God is getting you ready for a future ministry. Doesn't the Bible say that if we suffer with Him, we shall also rule and reign with Him? That's what it says, right? You see, so many times we get this crazy idea that whenever we die that, you know, it's going to go to heaven, sit there, you know, on a stool of do nothing, whittle on the stick of do less, and watch the, you know, watch the years go by and not do anything. But it's not that way at all. The Bible says we're going to serve Him day and night forever. In other words, there's going to be unending service rendered unto the King. For all of eternity, we're going to be serving Him in some way. And we know for 1,000 years right here on this same earth that while He's ruling and reigning on the earth, we're going to be ruling and reigning with Him And all of the stuff that we're going through that we don't understand and that so many times we resent so very much, all of that stuff is preparing you for whatever ministry the Lord has in mind. None of your suffering is going to be wasted because it's all a part of God's plan. And I look at who Jesus is and I think about what Jesus has done. And I think about what he is doing, and I cannot but say his name is wonderful. But then there's another reason why we call him wonderful, and that's because of what he's going to do. Notice, notice Isaiah says here in our text, The government shall be upon his shoulder. That's why I keep saying for the Christian, the best is yet to come. 
You see, what Jesus is going to do is wonderful. Next time you get discouraged, the next time that you just feel like you'd rather just check out on God and that you've had enough of this old world, pick up your Bible and look through the prophetic telescope of time and take into consideration what God is going to do. And I guarantee you, you'll be encouraged by, by it. He says, the government shall be, this is something in the future, the government shall be on his shoulder. In other words, the Redeemer is going to become the ruler over all of the earth. The Jews in that day were living in spiritual darkness and they are discouraged. Some of those Jews felt that God had forgotten all about them. It seemed to them that God was just ignoring the injustices of the day. It seemed that God had no interest in their personal needs. And by the way, a lot of folks even today feel exactly like that. We look around and it seems that evil is prevailing on every hand and we wonder to ourselves, why doesn't God do something about this? Why doesn't God just take the bull by the horns and, you know, force mankind into the path of obedience and He doesn't do that? Others mistreat us and there seems to be no, no consequences for what they do. It seems like to us they're getting by with it. We have needs, whether they be physical needs or material needs or whatever it is, and we wonder why God doesn't immediately respond. You see, we want action, and we want it right now. And God is not working according to our schedule. Biblical faith demands that we consider the big picture. That is, that we take the long view We want God to leap into action and God's not ready. He's too wise to do that. God has a perfect plan and He's working it out according to His schedule. Listen, we are never promised anywhere that there would be universal peace and that there would be endless relief from our suffering before that time when Jesus comes to rule and reign upon the earth. That's what we want, right? I mean, after all, we're just human. I think all of us realize, if you don't, you should, we all ought to realize that we don't deserve anything. If we don't deserve anything, we ought not to complain about anything and be thankful for everything. So if I don't deserve anything whatsoever, I ought to be thankful. If I have one moment of relief from pain, if I have one good day, if I have one nugget of a blessing from God in any way whatsoever, that ought to be enough to cause me to fall onto my face and to thank God for His goodness. But... We want more than that, don't we? Sure we do. We might know in our, in our heart that it's wrong for us to murmur and to complain, but, uh, but to some extent I think we all do. We, we want it to be different. And by the way, there's not anything wrong with wanting it to be better 
But there's something wrong whenever we get so frustrated and bent out of shape that we feel like God is depriving us of what we deserve because we don't deserve any of those things. And the good news is that one of these days, just like the Lord promised, He's going to fix all of those things that, that seem to be wrong. We talk about living in an upside-down world. Well, one of these days, He's going to turn it right side up. One of these days, He's going to put it back on the right track. And all that was lost in the first Adam is going to be restored in the second Adam, that is, in the Lord Jesus Christ whenever He comes. There's a good reason why the Bible declares that for the believer, the coming of Christ is our blessed hope. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Our blessed hope. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because regardless of, you know, we can, we can try every way humanly possible. We can exhaust our imagination in thinking of phrases to describe how wonderful it's going to be. And whenever we've come to the end of ourself and we can't think of anything else to say, I'm telling you, it's going to be more wonderful than anything we could possibly imagine. And we look into the Bible and we realize that the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. We realize that the great physician is going to cure us of all of our ills. We realize that the rock of ages is going to smite the kingdom of the Antichrist and the King of Kings is going to establish His kingdom upon this earth. The lion of the tribe of Judah in that day shall prevail over all of his enemies and the son of David shall inherit the throne and the Redeemer shall lay claim to all that belongs to him as he takes control of this earth and the Prince of Peace brings peace finally at long last to planet earth. No wonder... We call him wonderful. Someone wrote that old song that we've sung so many times. He is a wonderful Savior to me. I wonder this morning, is he your wonderful Savior? He's wonderful because of who he is and what he's done. He's wonderful because of what he's doing and what he shall yet do. But none of that, listen, none of that is, has any meaning for those that, that reject him. We can sit around and talk about the glories of Christ for ages. But we don't benefit until we come to that place in our life that we trust His shed blood for the remission of our sins and know Him as our own personal Savior. And when we do, realizing that the best is yet to come, realizing that some of these days that you and I that have received Him, shall reign with Him. How, how, can, how can we not but be encouraged, regardless of how dark the night and difficult the days, regardless of how painful life might be for you or difficult it might be, to know that God has a plan now keep in mind that 700 years before Jesus was born, 
It had been predicted by the prophet that he would be born of a virgin. And I've often thought about those succeeding generations after that. They gather, those Jewish folks gather their family, you know, together. And the father, being the spiritual leader in the home, would share with those children the teaching that God loves us so much that one of these days a virgin shall conceive and a virgin is going to give birth to, to a man-child. His name's going to be called Emmanuel and he's going, to, he's going to save us from our sins. But Daddy dies. A new generation is raised embracing the same belief as the previous generation but keep in mind, this goes on for 700 long years. And you, you've, you've just got to know, human nature being what it is, that by the time that Jesus was born, there were more than a few doubters. Huh. Grandpa used to talk about this virgin-born Savior. It didn't happen. Daddy tried to convince me. Now Daddy and Grandpa, they're both dead and gone. and I, I just can't believe there's anything to it. But it happened. In the fullness of time, Paul said, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman. Amen? Just like He promised the reason I mention that is because the same Bible tells us that Jesus is going to come again. But Peter said in the last days there shall be those scoffers who would come mocking that teaching. And they're going to say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the world began, everything continues just as it's always been. You know yourself, whenever we talk about the fact that the Lord is going to come, and God's children are going to be all, all of a sudden raptured out of this world, you know, try telling your neighbor about that, and they probably, you know, think you're ready for the funny farm or something. Most people don't believe that at all. But the same God that promised that he would be born of a virgin 700 years earlier before he was born, that same God who has promised that Jesus is going to come again will see to it that it really happens and we need to be ready. Would you be ready if he came today? Because he's coming. He's coming. Would you be ready? No wonder we call him wonderful. Let's stand, Father. How we thank You for our wonderful Savior. How we thank You, Lord, for who He is and how thankful we are for what He's done. When He hung there on that cross and suffered in our stead, He took our place that we might be forgiven of our sins. Lord, I pray today if there are those here that have never received Christ as their Savior, that this, this might be the very day that they'd come to know Him in the free pardon of sin and leave here with joy bells ringing in their heart, knowing that if they died today, that they'd, they would go to be with You. 
And Lord, I realize today that life is tough for every single one of your children. You never promised that it would be anything but that now. But how thankful we are to know that regardless of how bad it is now, that the best is yet to come. And someday, just like you promised, whenever we stand before you and we, and we, for the first time in life, understand the reason why you allowed us to be subjected to all of these difficulties, we know that there will not be one complaint issued against you but we will rejoice knowing that everything about you and your plan, everything that you allowed and everything you caused, that it's all wonderful. So help us to find relief from our trials and strength for our battles and to leave here encouraged today knowing that regardless of how impossible it seems, that you never fail. For we beg it in Jesus' name.